Hi, everybody. Welcome to Lectures on Lacan, a podcast dedicated to clear, coherent, and accessible readings of key texts in Lacanian psychoanalysis. I'm your host, Samuel McCormick, Professor of Communication Studies and Psychoanalysis at San Francisco State University. Hope you enjoy today's episode, and if you do, be sure to like and follow us on Substack, Instagram, and all the usual places. Chapter 20 in Seminar 16 is terrific. It's got a lot of great stuff in there and really proves the point that a large stake of what we've been working on here is the relationship between the subject and the other, particularly the barred subject and the barred other. Notice how Lacan sets all this up. The action begins on page one, the very first line. It is impossible not to consider the incidence of the subject as primary in psychoanalytic practice. Next page. It continues again. That is why it is always essential to take up again the question of the structure in psychoanalysis at the level of the subject. It is what constitutes the real progress. It is, of course, the only thing that can make what is improperly called the clinic progress. Moving on to page three. What is the structure of the subject? Well, it's exactly the structure that we've been talking about ever since we started reading this seminar. The structure of the subject is defined according to that of the signifier. The signifier is what represents the subject for another signifier. There's the hypothesis. There's the formula that we've been working on throughout this seminar. And you know the basic topology of the subject that results from this. There's an S1 pointing to an S2, and underneath the S1 is a barred subject. The S1 is the signifier that represents the barred subject to another signifier here designated as S2. Here is the formula, Lacan says, the originating formula, as I might say, that allows us to situate correctly what is involved in a subject. This is the first diagram that we worked with. The second is where we see this diagram being progressively encompassed in iterations of itself. So the first topology, S1 to S2 over barred subject, gets encompassed and becomes a new S2 relative to an iteration of the exact same topos. Now S1 related to the newly encompassed elements with a barred subject underneath. You know the diagram I'm talking about. It just progressively unfolds from there. You also see this being discussed, albeit not as explicitly, little further down on the page, page three. Here then is something that has already been sufficiently described here for me not to have to redo its whole construction and commentary. The first relationship that moreover is pregnant with all the others from S1 to S2, from this signifier that represents the subject for another signifier. In the effort that we make to circumscribe what is involved as regards the other of these signifiers, we try, as we have already written, to open up the field in which everything that is second signifier, namely the body, at the level of which the subject is going to be represented by a signifier, to inscribe at the locus of big A, this locus which is the big other. The big other, as we've discussed in this series, is an operational logic of progressive encompassment where each topology of the subject gives way to a bigger, badder version of the same topology that encompasses it. Gives way to a bigger, badder topology that encompasses it. Something is always dropping out, though. The operational logic of the big other, and that's all it really is, is an operator is to progressively encompass each of the dropping out barred subjects. We've been over this. I won't spend much time on it. You can review the earlier lectures if you're, um, if you're interested in it. 
I think you sufficiently remember that by writing what is involved in this way, all we can do at the level of the very inscription of S2 is to repeat that for everything that follows, namely everything that may be inscribed subsequently, we must put the mark of big A again as locus of inscription, namely to see in short there being hollowed out from what I called the last time the inform of this big A, a new noun that we are making up for our own use, the inform of big A, the little A that holds it. So here we're back to discussions of why the big other doesn't exist and why what in fact we see is the barred other. The barred other does exist, but the big other does not. The barred other is a hold other, an other that has been bored out, that has a hollow in it. Objea, this little a, is the symbol we use to designate this hole in the barred other, this hole that constitutes the big other as always already barred. Again, we've been through this many times, so I'm going to move quickly through it. It's an inform, Lacan tells us. And this little a designates the hole and also marks something that's able to rattle around in that hole. Think about, for instance, the work that we did with the sleigh bell. Let's pause for a moment, Lacan says. at something that I consider as sufficiently understood because of having been, I had some testimony of it, tangible to some people who found some evidence, I mean in clinical work, for this inform of big A. Again, we're just reading right through chapter 20 here. We're now on page 4 of this chapter, and the hits just keep coming. A formula designated to show what is really involved in objet A. Namely, the topological structure of big A itself, which means that the big A is not complete, is not identifiable in any case to a number one, to a whole. So again, if you needed a, another passage to add to Lacan's claim from Seminar 14 forward that the big other doesn't exist, that it is always incomplete, that it is not whole, that there is no universe of discourse, and so on and so on and so on. Here it is. The topological structure of the big slash barred other, which means that it is not complete. You cannot identify it in any case to a one. There is no oneness to the big other. It is not a total set. It operationalizes elements in hopes and an effort as a will to totality, but it never gets there. It is not a whole. It is always um, only a pile of parts at most. In a word, that this big A is absolutely to be felt, to be represented, as if it were at the level of paradox, the paradox that logicians had good reason for creating, the paradox of the set described as all the sets that do not contain themselves. So if you've seen our series on 14, you know that Russell's paradox pops largely in there. Here it is again, the set of all sets that do not contain themselves. And you similarly see the basic paradox of the big other being played out here around container and or thing contained. Think back to our example of the wastebasket. The wastebasket is not among the contents that constitute it as a trash-containing entity. The trash can is not included in the trash can. It's a logic of container and thing contained. That's really all Lacan is operationalizing here, is the dilemma of the container's relation to its own contents. Here's how he summarizes Russell's paradox. Again, if you need another passage for this in chapter 20. Either it is going to contain itself, and that is a contradiction, or it does not contain itself. So then not being one of those that does not contain itself, it contains itself, and we find ourselves before a second contradiction. You can look it up if you're curious about Russell's paradox. This is Lacan's account of it. The stake here is understanding why and how and to what effect the big other is always the barred other, an other that lacks. He goes on to offer a pretty slick formula 
that allows him to make just a very clean argument about the differential system of signifiers that he understands as language, the symbolic, and the like. And it's really quite simple. So simple, in fact, that he surprises himself a little earlier when he says, I can't even believe nobody's even brought this up. And the simplicity of this is that signifiers cannot represent themselves except by being distinguished from themselves. This is that differential system that we've talked so much about. Again, think of looking up any word in the dictionary. You look up the word cat in the dictionary and you do not see the word cat. You see a whole host of other signifiers, the meanings of which you have to understand in order to make sense of what cat is. This differential system of signifiers readily apparent in any interaction you might have with the dictionary. But again, we've been over that, so we're going to move fast in the direction Lacan is taking us here. In a chapter that of itself is pretty summative as well. There's some new elements in here, and that's what I want to get to. But a lot of this is just a great summative statement of where he's been so far. Not coincidentally, we're a few chapters from the end of the seminar itself. It's usually a point where Lacan takes it upon himself to try and cinch up what he's been doing and bring some sort of summative statements to bear. This alterity of the signifier to itself is properly what is designated by the term of the big other marked by an O, in this case, a big A. The big other is this differential system of signifiers. That's why we can oftentimes link it very readily to the symbolic, to language, and the like. He then wants to make a bit of a fuss about the big A as a signifier of the big other, and what that does in terms of allowing the big other as a virtual entity to be separate from its inscription. We don't need all that fancy stuff, because what we know is that S2 as an avatar of the big other is every bit an inscription or an embodiment at the level of language of the big other. This big A, qua exterior, to S2, that inscribes it, is the inform of big A, namely the same thing as little a, Lacan says on page 5. Now this little a, as we know, is the subject itself, insofar as it can only be represented by a representative that is S1 on this occasion. So here we get to the meat of what's happening in Seminar uh, 16, Chapter 20. The status of this particularly strange function object designated by little a. Little a marks lack. It's also the small piece of trash shit that can rattle around inside the very opening that it designates. It is always also an object little a. Now, that's part of what we've been toying with here. What Lacan wants to do is say that there's some sort of a superimposition of objets between that which designates the lack in the barred other and that which designates the lack in the barred subject. And again, that's really been the question here. What is the relationship between the barred subject and the barred other? He wants to say that this first otherness is that of the signifier which can only express the subject in the form of what we have learned to circumscribe in analytic practice in terms of a particular strangeness. This is what Objea is linked to, a particular strangeness that pops up in analytic practice. And it's this that I would like. I would not, I would say not to open up today because moreover in a seminar that I gave at one time, it was in the year 1961 to 1962 on identification, I laid its foundations. So again, Lacan saying, listen, I've already talked about this. Nevertheless, he goes on, it is these foundations themselves that I am recalling, simply summarized and brought together today to make you sense something that is not to be taken as given to any analyst, of course, except by analytic experience. He, the analyst, knows what is involved in this little a 
as essential to the subject and as marked by this strangeness. And then notice this move where he cues up the drive. Besides, I already enumerated these little A's long enough ago for it to be well known from the breast to excrement, from the voice to the look, the voice and the look being very important elements in this chapter, what is meant in its ambiguity by the word strangeness with its affective note and also its indication of a topological margin. That's a pretty nice statement on the drives. Objet A is an object and an opening. And let's be more precise than that even. Objet A marks a lost object and a found opening. And that's part of the dialectic that constitutes the drives. A dialectic of objects lost and openings found. If there's a lost and found piston, if you will, in the drive, it's around objects lost and openings found. That's kind of what he's getting at here. The breast, excrement, the voice, and the look. These are the lost objects whose loss indicates a topological margin, an opening, an edge structure known here as the erogenous zone. It's with the loss of the breast that the mouth, qua lips, emerges as an opening, as a topological margin in the human form. It's in navigating the relation to excrement that the anus begins to emerge as a topological margin, an opening with an edge or rim-like structure in the human form, and so on and so forth. A nice little concise statement on the drive, more of a side note to what we're up to here, but certainly one worth pointing out. What is at stake is to make those who do not have this as a datum of experience sense something or other that can evoke its reasonable place in the reference points of what is considered as practical experience. Wrongly, it is no more practical than analytic experience, but let's go. This is the introduction that Lacan offers to chapter 20 here at the end of seminar 16. What happens next is the more interesting part of what he's doing here in chapter 20. And it all starts on the very same page with his discussion of the trace. The passages on the trace are a little enigmatic. He links them back to his statements on identification on page 6. And then on page 6 and page 7, he starts to trace out a logic of the trace and then the effacement of the trace that I think sounds a lot more complicated than it actually is, only because we have, in a very real sense, already done the work of unpacking this stuff. Think back to what we did with S1, first as a unary trait, namely a trace, and second as a master signifier, as the effacement of that trace. We'll talk about that, but let's see, first of all, how Lacan puts it on page 6 of chapter 20 here. I was talking about identification, and I used the word trace. The trace means something. The trace of a hand, the trace of a foot, an imprint. Observe carefully here at this level that trace is distinguished from signifier differently to what in our definition as we have already distinguished as sign. This is interesting. The sign, I said, is what represents something for someone. Here, there is no need for someone. A track is sufficient in itself. That's the first ambiguity here. I would suggest that we can leave that and move on to the second in the very next paragraph. We can here and now posit that what the trace becomes through metaphor, the sign, if you wish, through metaphor also. These words are not in the right place because I have just ruled them out. Okay, and then here's the stuff. What a subject signifies qua trace, this sign, contrary to the natural trace, has no other support than the inform, big A. What does that mean, he asks. The trace passes on to the inform of the big A the ways in which it was effaced. So there's the trace and then its effacement. 
The subject is the very ways by which, as imprint, the track finds itself effaced. So whatever else the subject is, it is simultaneously traced and effacing of that trace. It has been tracked through and also marks an effacement of that track. A witticism that I already pinned to this remark, entitling what could be said about it, the four effacings of the subject. The subject is the one that effaces the trace by transforming it into look, look to be understood as slit, half glimpse. Terrific passage that he explains a little bit later, but that we're going to need to make some more of. It is through this that he tackles what is involved in the other who has left the trace. He has passed that way. He is beyond. It is not enough to say, of course, that a subject as such does not leave a trace. What defines him and at the same time delivers him is, first of all, something through which he is effectively distinguished. As compared to any living organism, what is involved in the animal that speaks is that he can efface them and efface them as such as being his tracks. Now, if you think back to our third major diagram of this series, the one that has the barred subject, the S1 and the S2 in position, but then underneath it has the barred A. The barred other is the um, overarching set virtual entity that gives way to the subset known as S2, out of which there's generated an S1 qua unary trait that then is delivered to the subject and has a splitting effect, at the very least splitting the subject into the constitutive components of the ego ideal and the superego, as we've discussed. Here you see S1 functioning as a unary trait. The word Lacan is using here is trace, track, imprint. S1 as unary trait is an imprinting or a tracing or a tracking through by the big barred other into the subject. It's this first understanding of S2 that we discussed in our third major diagram of the series. So here's what you have. You have a barred other a big other always lacking that's a virtual operational logic, a structure, and no more. And then you've got S2 as a discourse or a, dis a discipline, an avatar, a subset, Lacan says, of this barred other. Here he's describing it as an inscription of the big barred other, bound by the same operational logics and limitations. And that's the important part here. S2 does not equal the big other, but it is bound by the same operational logics and limitations, the basic one of which is absolute containment. It pushes towards totality and is limited by its inability to reach that totality, the same way that the big other is always barred. This avatar, the example we had from back in the day, was a family of names would give way to a single name, one name. Anthony, I believe, was the name we chose. That would be the S1 or the unary trait that would be inscribed onto the subject. And that would be the imprint, the trace, or the track. What Lacan is here suggesting, then, is that there's this second move. The subject is not just the passive site of this trace or this track or this imprint that the big other leaves on them by way of S2. The subject is also the one who can efface this trace, Lacan says, who can transform it. Here we see the S1 in the other major arrow of this third diagram we developed, functioning not as a unary trait, but as a master signifier, a signifier that stands out from the barred other and all of its S2s, and ideally could be accepted and integrated eventually, but in a more radical fashion, if not accepted, would remain on the outside, 
a missing signifier relative to whatever S2 it designates, or at least tries to mark. The example we had was of the split subject saying, I no longer want to be called Anthony. My friends all call me Tone. It's a fairly pedestrian basic example, but what it captures is some part, some signifier, some name within the S2 of all these family names that is not yet included. And the question then becomes, can the family accept this as a name? Can Tone now become part of the regiment of first names accessible to anyone who's born into this family? If the answer is yes, you have an integration where the master signifier now can be used as a unary trait and delivered to other subjects. So, he was born Anthony. As a teenager, he insisted on tone. The family accepted tone. And then future generations now have access to tone as their unary trait, as their proper name. And they, in turn, can come along and say, I don't want to be called tone. Tone was my grandfather's name. I want you to call me T. T-Money, you keep going with, with the examples here. Those S1s as master signifiers can either be integrated into the S2, allowing them to be metabolized and redistributed as S1s qua unary traits, or they can remain outside, rejected, dejected on the outside as missing signifiers. And by extension, signifiers of lack. But we'll come to that in a second. The main point here is that the subject effaces and thus transforms the traces of their own castration. And here by that we mean a renunciation of jouissance, as commanded by the barred other. Think back to some of our first lectures on this seminar. The subject doesn't just receive traces, tracks, and imprints from the barred other. They also in turn learn to efface and thus transform these traces traces of their own castration, of their own splitting, of the fact that the barred other is the one calling the shots. And what do they transform them into? Here in a very revealing example, Lacan says that transforming it into a look, a look to be understood as slit, as half glimpse, a look to be understood as a slit, by slit, he means something very precise, as he says on page 9 here. A cut in what is seen. An opening out and beyond the scene. Here he calls it a half glimpse. But it's a really interesting moment here in, in the discussion, where the trace that is transformed into a look and the look that functions as a slit in the environmental scene, perhaps known as the barred other. A half glimpse, a half opened eye, but a cut in what is seen, a cut in the umfelt or the world in which the subject opens their eyes anew. And that's an important element here. Think back to what we were just doing with the drive. The subject opens their eyes anew an opening out and beyond the world that is now seen anew, when they efface and thus transform traces of their own castration. Objects lost, openings regained. Think about this. What else is the slit or the eye but an opening in the human form that is here reclaimed and is functioning as an effacement? An effacement that has a transformative potential for the subject the same way the master signifier has a transformative potential for the subject, but also for the barred other. We're just riffing on this stuff. It's a great little chapter. I encourage you to come up with riffs of your own. These just happen to be mine. And just at present, I just finished reading this thing and thought I'd sit down and talk with you all about it. Let's be clear. The tracks left in the barred subject by the barred A as unary traits become the barred subject's own to be subsequently effaced by him alone and therefore changing them into master signifiers. That's the argument that we're working with here. The subject is imbued with traces, cut with traces that can then be transformed and effaced the same way that someone can 
um, scramble their own tracks. We get some great statements of this on page eight throughout the page here. Second line from the top. A creature that can read its tracks is able through this to re-inscribe himself elsewhere than where he found them. This reinscription is the link that makes him henceforth dependent on another whose structure does not depend on him. That's a very crucial element here. Dependent on another whose structure does not depend on him. Again, we see a non-reciprocity here between the barred subject and the barred other. But we're moving fast. Everything opens up to what belongs to the register of the subject, defined as what effaces his tracks. The subject at the limit, and to make you sense the original dimension of what is at stake, I would call him, check it out, the one that replaces his tracks by his signature. Absolutely crucial here. You can't help but wonder who Lacan is reading at this point on May 14th, 1969. I would bet that if we could go back to his desk, he would have some Derrida sitting right there on his desk. It's a wager. I'd have to wonder about it. Hell, the word grammatology does pop up in this chapter. But this element of the signature is crucial. And you know, a signature, not much is asked to constitute someone as a subject. An illiterate who does not know how to write, it is enough for him to make a cross, a symbol of the bar, a bard, of the effaced track, the clearest form of what is at stake. When you leave a sign, then something cancels it, that is enough as a signature. That bit about the bar, bard, really nicely captures what Lacan is doing in his definition of the subject here in chapter 20. The bar is the trace, or the track, or the cut, or the mark of the split subject. Here, S1 as unary trait is a barring of the subject, a splitting of the subject at the level of trace, track, cut. We can go on listing these terms. When he's talking about the signature of an illiterate person, he says a cross. Typically, we think of this now as just an X. The X marks the spot. If you couldn't write, you could just put an X there, and that would be your signature. Lacan's point is that that X is a barring of the bar. It's an effacement of the bar. The first slash is the barring of the subject, and the second slash that forms the X is a barring of that bar. A symbol of the bar barred. This is a bar barred, if you will, Bar, 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 barbarian. Think back to the etymology of the word barbarian, and you'll start to get pretty close to what Lacan is up to here, right? A barbarian in antiquity was someone who couldn't speak Greek. And whenever they spoke, someone would say, bar, 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 kind of like blah, 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 blah. The barbard, it's nice to hear that here in the English and think around the topic of an illiterate someone who's putting an X instead of a signature. And this is not that class, but Jacques Rancière has great stuff on what it means to reduce a speaking being's utterances to noise, to the blah blahs, to the wah wah wah, if you prefer your peanuts. Again, not exactly where we're at, but it's worth noting as a footnote to where we are. This barred bar is the effacement, is the transformation is the remarking of the mark that marks the subject. If we could be a little bit more arch with this. It's the effaced track, Lacan says. And this is the clearest form of what is at stake in the barred subject. Yes, the barred subject receives and is dependent on the unary traits provided by S2s, which are subsets of the barred other and in that sense, subjected to, thrown under the barred other. And yet there is this capacity, and even definitional capacity at the level of the subject, qua effacement, where these bars that it receives can themselves be barred. 
these traces left by the barred other, the big other, the parental figure whose unary trait gets internalized and identified with at the level of the subject, can itself be effaced. Here again in our third diagram, this is S1 doubling back now as a master signifier for the barred subject. And the fact that it is the same for whoever is asked for it, Lacan continues, changes nothing in the fact that this will be accepted to authenticate the act in question, the presence well and truly of someone who juridically is held to be a subject. Nothing more and nothing less but whose level I am trying to define, certainly not to make an absolute of it, but precisely to mark its link of dependency. Because the remark begins here. The signifier is born from effaced tracks. So the signifier is what represents the subject to another signifier. And Lacan is here telling us about the prehistory of that signifier. The signifier is born from effaced tracks. What is then the consequence of this? It is that these effaced tracks are only worthwhile through the system of others, whether they are similar or the same. The system of others here is the differential system of signifiers, all of which are also effaced tracks, Lacan would say. The signifier is an effaced track, a barred bar, and all the things that you've just heard me discussing. It is only in these others established in a system, and remember, it's a differential system, that there begins the typical import of language. So here you have it. There are imprints, traces, tracks, cuts, think castration, think incision, think our definition of the cause of desire being loss and lack, loss being the incision or the cut or the removal, the excision, if you will. And then you have something made of that excision, an effacement or a transformation of it, where now the incision becomes the look, the incision becomes the slit of a half-opened eye that also marks a cut or a rupture in the environment scene. That's a little funky, but it's also sound. This is the origin of the signifier. The signifier is the effaced track. And it only works and has meaning insofar as it is linked to other signifiers. In other words, other effaced tracks. Here are our S1s linking up with S2s. And these together, in their differential relation to one another, comprise language. It's such a terrific understanding of how Lacan arrives at language here. These efface tracks are the only ones accepted. And then he raises the question without even missing a beat. This guy's not even going to slow down to really just mark the advancement here at the level of the origin of language. He's just going to keep going. Accepted by whom? Well then, here we land on our feet again. In the same way that in the definition of the subject a signifier represents for another signifier, <clears throat> they are the only ones accepted by whom? Answer, by the other traces, of course. We could go on, but I think the point is pretty clear. The subject is the one that replaces his traces with his signature. And the signature, like an X, is a barred bar that then links up with other signatures in a signifying field, here demonstrated in our purposes by S2. And then all the resulting S2s, they point to what Lacan calls the substructure known as barred A. And that's our next stop. We've talked about how S2 is a subset of the big other, 
the big barred other. Kind of nice. It gives you a little bit of the big bad wolf. Here we've got the big bad barred other. Lacan wants to say, though, that this big bad barred other is a substructure of sorts. It's on page 10. Paragraph begins, undoubtedly. Undoubtedly, the term cut is what predestines these supports, definable materially as look and voice, what predestines them to this function of being what, replacing the track, establishes this sort of totality from which a topology is constructed as defining the big O other at its term. As you see, only substructural considerations are involved here. Not at all, of course, original ones, because after all, this does not sh say how this other began. It says how it holds together when it is there. He is not answering the question of the origin of the barred other. I think we can piece it together if we look carefully at what he's doing with the effaced track. But he's saying that's not what he's at what's at stake here. What's at stake is how it holds together. How does the barred other hold together? And what makes this a substructural consideration? These are the questions that mark the middle point of chapter 20. And, you know, like all middle points in a lot of Lacan's work, things get a little murky here. And he starts returning to topics he's already addressed. but at the same time, brings us to something new. By page 14, he's on to the sexual rapport and its non-existence, all out of the operation of the signifier. And then he comes to the question that you've all been waiting for. It's the question of the phallus as a privileged signifier. This is the key topic in the second part of chapter 20. This phallus as a privileged signifier, a missing signifier, that gives us the clue about how the barred other hangs together. Some of this is going to be familiar. Some of this is going to be new. But the key for us is this turn towards the phallus it starts on page 15 of chapter 20. There are a couple of great ways to understand what Lacan is doing with the phallus. One is to dig back into Ecree to the 1958 talk that Lacan gave published there. You might not get as much use out of that turn as you would by sticking with chapter 20 here in seminar 16 which refers back to, and I believe indexes, that rightly famous essay in Ecree, but gives us a little bit more to work with. So let's start there with chapter 20, where we've been discussing this aspect of the structure of the subject and its relation to the structure of the big barred other, this infrastructural it's probably what Lacan is getting at here when he talks about the substructural considerations, this infrastructural, virtual, operational logic that is always lacking. In fact, structured around a basic lack, void, or impossibility, not unlike the subject. Backing up, though, in order to ramp to the missing signifier that is the phallus, Check out page 12 in chapter 20, the paragraph on the subject, which you'll recall, according to Lacan, is really what's at stake in this chapter. Such are the four fashions, effacings, in which the subject can be inscribed. The subject that in the middle of this is, of course, properly speaking, ungraspable because of only able to be represented by a representative. In the middle of this doesn't just mean in the middle of chapter 20, in the middle of this discussion, but in the middle of the barred other. 
it is in so far as it is inscribed in the field of the big other that it, the subject, subsists. And this is what we have to deal with if we want to account in a correct fashion for what is at stake in psychoanalysis. So there he's back to these opening claims at the start of the chapter where understanding the structure of the subject becomes the crucial piece of understanding what analytic theory and technique amount to. And then notice this very quotable riff on page 12. The distance can be measured between what is defined as a subject and what is held to be a person. Great stuff here. The distance can be measured, namely, they must be very severely distinguished. Every kind of personalism in psychoanalysis leads itself to every deviation, to every confusion. In the psychoanalytic perspective, what is defined, marked, in other registers described as moral, as being the person, we cannot situate at any other level than that of symptom. The person begins where, of course, this subject, as I have situated it for you, is differently anchored, is anchored in a much broader way the one that brings into play what, no doubt, is placed at its origin, namely, enjoyment. So what we know about the structure of the subject at the level of the signifier is that the signifier is what represents the subject to another signifier connected to and inscribed within the field of signification known as the symbolic language, the barred other, etc., what we see here now is an anchor point for this subject that is represented by a signifier. The anchor point, the origin of the subject, is enjoyment. And not just any enjoyment, sexual enjoyment, and not just any anchor, as we're going to see. It's the specific relation or non-relation that the subject has to sexual enjoyment that provides it with an anchor and all, I would suggest, within the field of the barred other. And then notice this turn. It's because analytic experience teaches us here to outline differently the cartographical atlas, as I might say, of what is involved in these operations that refer to the subject that it takes on its importance. This emphasis on a cartographical atlas is terrific. The hypothesis of Seminar 16, that the subject is what's represented by a signifier to another signifier, this S1 over barred subject with an arrow to S2, is the beginning of a cartographical atlas, a map of sorts that charts for us, if you prefer more sailing metaphors, the structure of the subject. And each of these elements, S1, S2, barred subject, these are waypoints. These are dots on the map that help us get a sense of how this thing operates. Very terrific stuff here with cartographical outlets, a great outlets, a great metaphor for us to hold in mind. After page 12, we get back again to some prefigurations of the non-rapport between the so-called sexes on page 14, which we mentioned. And then he's back to this notion of the phallus, the phallus on page 15 that we just mentioned. And he describes it as a privileged signifier, much as he does in a Cree. It's worth noting here how this privileged signifier operates. But again, in order to ramp up to this, let's take another step back and look now at the structure of the other. Because the barred other and the barred subject, I would suggest, are both barred for the same reason. They are both structured around a certain void, a certain impossibility, a foreclosure, namely a foreclosure of sexual enjoyment, which is forbidden to both. Jouissance is what is excised, Lacan tells us in 16, from the big other. What is always lacking from the big other is, and thus rendering it barred, is jouissance. Similarly, with the subject, what is forbidden 
is the very anchor point for the structure of the subject, namely sexual enjoyment. The symbolic phallus, and here don't get this twisted with its imaginary sibling. sibling. Think uh, capital I with a little O in the middle of it, not the lower case cock and ball looking um, fee. This symbolic phallus, not the imaginary phallus, is the signifier of this mutual void that is reciprocally constitutive of both subject and other, barred subject and barred other. It's this great point where their lips touch. The signifier of the lack in the other, S parens barred A, is also in some sense, I'm suggesting here, the signifier of the barred subject. It's a signifier, interestingly enough, that is missing from both the system of the other and the system of the subject. And that's its important part here. That's what gives it its privileged status. It neither represents the subject nor the other, yet well designates their interrelation, which may we, we may decide is a non-relation. But the point is that this missing signifier does serve a signifying purpose. Its function is to signify I would suggest a touching point, a touch point between the structure of the subject and the structure of the other. You might even call this a superimposition of lack, where their two lacks overlap, lacks in this case of jouissance. Let's see if we can find some support for this in the text. And you'll notice in this series, we are flying close to the text, and the text is well suited to support such flight. Page 15 in our translation of chapter 20, this privileged signifier, this missing signifier that nevertheless intervenes in the systems of subject and other. I want to mark here justifies in a long construction which was made in close contact with the analysis articulated of what has been written from what remains as a testament of our experience of neurotics, I was able to qualify as missing signifier. Don't get hung up on all the clauses in here. Lacan is wordy, even and especially when he doesn't need to be. The question is important because if assuredly for what is involved in the articulation of the function of the subject, and that's the real stake here, the function of the subject and how we articulate and present this function, you clearly see that however far the articulation of knowledge may be pushed, the subject shows the flaw there. So there's something about the function of the subject that repeatedly almost can't help but reveal the flaw in knowledge, the limitation, an inner limit within the field of knowledge. Now, you can read this as S2. You could read this as S2 as a subset or a stand-in for the barred other. Reading on. To say that the phallus is the missing signifier at the level that I was able to state it, at the point of my discourse when I risked, let us say, first putting it forward, I believe that the context was not yet sufficiently articulated for me to be able to say what I am now specifying. Now here he is referring back to a 1958 talk, again published in a Cree signification of the phallus. Check it out. What I would suggest, though, is don't read that essay and think you're going to have every sense of what's happening here. Quite the opposite. Lacan is suggesting that after reading this essay, you should return to chapter 20 in seminar 16, where he is now able to specify some of what he's up to in that essay. That's a great little note here. Very often we see the seminars conditioning the writings in Lacan's work. Here what you see is Lacan referring back to his writings and then expanding on and elaborating on some of the points made therein. And you might even suggest that the hinge point in these two dialectics is really the publication of a Cree. Prior to the publication of a Cree, we see the writings emerging from the seminars. After the publication of a Cree, we see Lacan increasingly returning back to his writings and elaborating on things said.
another wager for us. This is a lecture of many wagers, apparently. Reading on, again with this notion of the phallus as a signifier that is missing from the system of the subject, equally from the miss- missing from the system of the other, and that somehow still serves a signifying function by pointing to this void, this impossible foreclosed relation, non-relation, to jouissance, that the big other and the little subject both share. Everything is reduced to this signifier, Lacan says. The phallus, Lacan continues, precisely, he goes on to specify, which is not in the system of the subject, since it is not the subject that it represents, but, as one might say, sexual enjoyment qua outside the system, namely absolute. So, the signifier that is the phallus, this missing signifier, subtracted from the systems of subject and other alike, it does signify, but it does not signify the subject. The phallus is not an S1. The phallus instead signifies the sexual enjoyment that is outside the system of the subject, the anchor point for the system of the subject that is absolute that is excised from the system of the subject, much as it is excised from that of the big other. Reading on. It is not in this system of the subject, Lacan reiterates. There is no subject of sexual enjoyment. Terrific point. And yet, sexual enjoyment can be known, accessed, and embodied. If there is no subject of sexual, ju- of sexual enjoyment, what are we in moments of sexual enjoyment? Simply acephalic beings? What are we in moments of sexual enjoyment? We'll see if we get a clue here in chapter 20. We're on page 16 of our translation. And these remarks have no other interest than to allow us to specify the sense of the phallus as missing signifier. It is the signifier outside the system, and in a word, the conventional one to designate what is involved in sexual judgment, sexual enjoyment as radically foreclosed. So it's outside the systems of self and other, of subject and barred other, And yet it does designate something. It designates what's involved in sexual enjoyment as radically foreclosed. Everything that is repressed in the symbolic reappears in the real. We know this. It is indeed because enjoyment is quite real. So sexual enjoyment is real but has no subject. The fact is that in the system of the subject, sexual enjoyment is nowhere symbolized, nor can it be symbolized. So that's the dilemma there. Sexual enjoyment can be known. In fact, what else is the desire to know? It's not a desire to know thyself. It's a desire to acquire, to access knowledge at the level of the sexual, sexual knowledge which is not, again, about becoming better as a lover. It's not about technical, erotic know-how. It's about learning how to sit with, to be with, a type of knowledge that is beyond us, forbidden to us, absolute in a sense. Reading this alongside the autoerotic end of Hegel's Phenomenology of Spirit, would be a kind of fun experiment. The point here, though, is that there is some sort of an impossibility between the subject as inscribed in the field of the barred other, by the field of the barred other, and its ability to know, access, and implement sexual enjoyment. The system of the subject in which sexual enjoyment is nowhere symbolized, nor can it be, Lacan says.
what then is the phallic function? We know it works like a signifier. How exactly does this operate? We know it designates something that is subtracted, conditionally subtracted from the fields of subject and other. How does it operate? What is meant, then, Lacan asks, by this phallic function that seems, by not representing the subject to mark nevertheless a point of his determination as a field limited by a relationship to what is structured as the other. There it is, right there. The phallic function, it doesn't represent the subject, but it marks the point at which the subject as a formation, as a structure, is connected to, touches on, determined by and within a field known as that of the barred other, the symbolic language. A field that is limited by a relationship to what is structured as big O other. There's a lot to say about this. As you can tell, I'm moving fast, but I think we have arrived at something that's quite crucial here. The phallus as a missing signifier serves a very crucial purpose in Lacan's thought because it allows us to mark the point where the subject as a system, as a structure, is articulated with the other as another system. Thanks for listening to Lectures on Lacan. Stay tuned for more episodes soon. A big shout out to the artist Jerry Paper for our podcast theme music. <laughs>